Jeffrey Sachs has been studying the intersection of policy, finance and development for decades. Now, more than ever, he says the US needs a foreign policy that reflects the big shifts in economic power, a statecraft that reflects America's role as a superpower, but a chastened one, an economy that no longer has the capacity to bend the rest to its will. Donald Trump didn't create that need. He does make it more urgent. Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. Jeffrey Sachs, a professor at Columbia University in New York, is the author of A New Foreign Policy Beyond American Exceptionalism, published by Columbia University Press out October 2. He joins us this week. Jeff, welcome to Benchmark. Great to be with you. Jeff, every few years there are calls for a new approach to America's dealings with the world. What's unique about this moment that warrants a big change? Maybe we've needed a change for quite a while. America has been enmeshed in wars almost perpetually, almost nonstop now for decades. We seem to be creating lots of crises or engaged in a lot of crises, and we're not solving major challenges that we face, such as the global environmental crises. So what we are doing is not working. And I think that that's why I'm calling for new foreign policy. But perhaps for years and years, there's been a sense that we're we're not on a right course. Naturally, different uh, critics would have a different point of view. My point of view is that America got awfully arrogant in thinking uh, that it runs the show. I use the familiar term American exceptionalism. And uh, I think that this is a a big part of our hang-up. And when people remind an audience that the U.S. military is the most powerful in the world, we seem to hear that fairly often. Is that necessarily wrong or or does it miss the point or or is it it not really that relevant anymore? We are far and away the most powerful military in the world. We have uh, nuclear warheads uh, that, as they say, can make the dust bounce. We can destroy the world many times over. We have uh, hundreds, uh, sometimes it's uh, numbered uh, around 700 military bases in around 70 countries around the world. We can project power on uh, our naval fleet. Uh, We have uh, bases for intervening in other countries. So this military power is vast without question, but what is it getting us? What, what, what is the point after all? Well, it, it does, uh, of course, provide a defense. No one would dream of invading the United States. Uh, that's fine. But uh, what it also has done has led us into one conflict after another, in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, in Somalia, in countless other countries uh, were covertly engaged or providing uh, 
air support, uh, as in uh, Yemen, and we're not solving anything from these conflicts, just like we experienced with the Vietnam War, America with overpowering uh, military strength, but we ended up uh, leaving after more than a million uh, Vietnamese uh, died in that war, and I would say it was a war for absolutely no point. How critical are the tectonic shifts that the global economy has witnessed in the past few decades to the foreign policy challenge presenting us now? My basic argument is uh, historical. I point out that because of the Industrial Revolution, Britain became the dominant power of the 19th century. It was the Pax Britannica, the British peace, the British empire on which the sun never set. And then I explained that in the 20th century, because of World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II, essentially uh, the British Empire faded and the American Empire uh, succeeded it. And in 1941, the Time magazine editor Henry Luce christened uh, the American century. And that was the declaration that America now rules the roost and that we are the uh, top dog in the world, which was the case. Even during the Cold War, when it was a confrontation with the Soviet bloc, the U.S. was far and away economically uh, more developed, uh, more advanced, more prosperous. Of course, both sides had enough to blow up the world many times over. It's almost a miracle that uh, it didn't happen. When the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of the 1980s and then literally uh, dissolved uh, um, politically in uh, December 1991, the U.S. took that as the full confirmation that not only was it the American century, we were the only superpower standing. It was then called the unipolar world. I found that very naive, very arrogant, and very risky because After all, when you're 5% of the world population, are you really running the rest of the world? Do you really presume it? And I watched with my own eyes in visits year after year the rise of China, which really began its rapid ascent in 1978. So we were declaring the unipolar world, America is the Colossus, America is the new Rome, America is the indispensable country, America is the exceptional country. Just at the moment when uh, a very large country with four times the population was soaring ahead in terms of investment, infrastructure, technological capacity, and by some measures, uh, which one can technically argue about, uh, China's roughly the same size economy as the United States now, or, or even larger. And uh, that suddenly runs against the grain of, what do you mean? We're the unipolar power. How can China be the same size? How can China be the larger trade partner of other countries in the world? Now, this is, again, motivating yet another wave. This is the fundamental driver of uh, Trump trying to uh, really break the the international rules of the game because he he thinks uh, that the U.S. will fall behind if uh, these uh, rules continue uh, the way they are. In one sense, he's right. If we 
actually play fair and open, it wouldn't be surprising that a country four times more populous than the United States and very clever and uh, and uh, very uh, effectively governed would be able to reach American technology levels. And that, that is exactly what's happening. Let's go back to the end of the Cold War. President George H.W. Bush is generally praised for his handling of that period. You had a vantage point as an advisor to Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union. Jeff, what did you observe? Well, I, I did have an unbelievable seat at the uh, theatre, uh, really unbelievable. And where George Bush Sr. was quite good was 1980, 89, 90, in teaming up with Gorbachev for a peaceful transformation of Eastern Europe and for German reunification. I believed strongly then that Gorbachev's vision of uh, a peaceful common home of Eurasia that would stretch from Rotterdam to Vladivostok, as he said, from the Atlantic to the Pacific in a common home was, was really a great idea. But the idea uh, that Cheney had, who was the defense secretary at the time and uh, started to be implemented was, heck no, we won. Now we're on top. This isn't an open world. This is now a U.S.-led world. And the so-called neocons began their ascent. And I was uh, chagrined at the time, but not really understanding the full import of uh, how misguided this was. I I was... uh, rather idealistic. I thought Gorbachev was terrific, and um, I thought, let's uh, all live in peace, as it were. And uh, instead, what the U.S. did was start to expand NATO. One might have thought NATO could have been disbanded. It was uh, the military alliance against a country that no longer existed. But no, uh, not only uh, did it continue, but it started to expand eastward. Uh, and pretty relentlessly uh, until, as I point out in the book, it uh, really crossed a tripwire in 2008 when the U.S. invited Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. And uh, Putin said, are you kidding? That's our border. No way. And uh, that is a lot of uh, the recrudescence of uh, the tensions uh, that are plainly evident uh, till now. eastward from Soviet Union and Russia. I I have to admit that as a uh, journalist covering economics, I went straight to the economic section of your book and found the uh, framing of the whole situation, as, as you discussed earlier. As you discussed earlier, very interesting. 
I was particularly struck by your uh, writing about the Japan relationship with the U.S. and the parallels with today's relationship between the U.S. and China. And and uh, you talk about how the U.S. was responsible or at least complicit in Japan's economic collapse after its boom in the 1980s. And now the U.S. seems to be trying some of the same kinds of tactics against China. How do you see those parallels and, and why do you think, again, America will will not be able to contain China's economic rise? Well, let me say first that my view is uh, a bit uh, heterodox, a bit unusual. It would not be the textbook or the mainstream view. And uh, I can't uh, prove it to to, uh, the decimal point, but having been quite involved with uh, Japanese policymakers and U.S. policymakers over the years, my sense is that in the 1970s, when Japan was soaring, and then in the early 80s, when uh, one of my colleagues at Harvard, wonderful uh, sociologist and writer Ezra Vogel, called uh, Japan as number one. Uh, and there was uh, the talk that, well, Japan is going to outstrip the U.S. as the dominant industrial power of the world, that American strategic thinkers, the formers of statecraft said, uh, no way. Anyway, Japan is under our security umbrella, ours. Japan depends on us. And no way Japan is going to take our semiconductor industry. No way it's going to take our steel industry. No way it's going to uh, take our auto companies down. We're going to stop that. And all through the 80s, the U.S., which has a lot of leverage on uh, Japan, first uh, put in so-called voluntary export restraints. Uh, And then in 1985-86, James Baker uh, engineered, uh, as Treasury Secretary, uh, engineered a sharp appreciation of uh, the yen, really undermining Japan's export competitiveness. And in 1989 to 1991, uh, the Japanese financial bubble burst. And uh, Japan went into the doldrums for 20 years, Uh, not a profound crisis, but definitely into the doldrums. And that whole idea of Japan overtaking us was gone. Uh, And I would say, in my interpretation, vanquished by active, high-level U.S. statecraft. So is there a template there for the current situation? I think we're watching uh, the same game plan uh, play out right now. And I see it in in a number of ways. The U.S. is uh, saying no to China's exports, uh, trying to block the way. And then uh, if the yuan, the renminbi, starts to depreciate, they scream uh, currency manipulation, currency manipulation. And the Chinese uh, right now lean against depreciation, partly because they want to avoid the charge of manipulating the currency. To me, this is all a game. What do you mean manipulating the currency? You start a trade war, you put on export barriers, of course the currency is going to depreciate. Uh, But the U.S. goal is to slow the Chinese economy, to break the export-led growth model, and ultimately to stop China's rise. And this, I think, is not just an innocent surmise. This is pretty explicit. And uh, I think it's pretty clear from 
the uh, Trump administration foreign policy documents uh, that China is really accused of all sorts of uh, nefarious uh, things, which are gross exaggerations, vulgar exaggerations in certain contexts, definitely trying to provoke the uh, sense of crisis and use uh, America's policy instruments to hurt the Chinese economy. I doubt that this is going to work in the end. I think it's very regrettable and very dangerous. Uh, But the U.S. is uh, thinking probably strategically in a sense, not just Trump's whims. Well, we're going to pull off Europe because they depend on us for security. And so it's going to be the U.S. and Europe. We're going to block China from gaining new technology. Russia's kind of ambivalent in all of this. Uh, India's going to be on side. So we're progressively going to isolate China. That's the idea. I think it's fatuous. I think it's dangerous. And it is the kind of actions that lead to a spiral of arms race and eventually potentially hot conflict because Chinese, uh, not just hardliners now, but mainstream analysts are saying, and it's completely understandable, the U.S. is trying to break us. A lot of contemporary commentary links American retreat in Asia to, say, disputes about the South China Sea or withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. In the book, Jeff, you reach back much further to 1971, the year before Nixon's visit to China. What happened in 1971 that sets the scene for today? Well, one thing that happened in 1971 is uh, that the world order (laughs) dramatically changed uh, when the U.S. uh, unilaterally ended the financial system that had governed from the end of uh, World War II, and Nixon unilaterally broke the bond of uh, the dollar and gold. That set off many different things, uh, including eventually the rise of the euro. We also had then the opening to China and That was a strategic move of the U.S. to uh, try to uh, get a flanking maneuver against our adversary, the Soviet Union, by uh, beginning an opening to China. And the idea there was uh, we'll let China into the system to outflank our main foe. In fact, uh, that moment really did start to lead to a transformation that dramatically accelerated in 1978 when Mao died in 76 and then Deng Xiaoping came to power, opened the Chinese economy to market forces and to globalization itself. The U.S. normalized relations with China. Uh, China's rise was seen to be to the U.S. advantage at the time. We always describe it as, well, playing by the rules in an open system. But what's happening now is that open system, uh, (laughs) from the point of view of those who think that the job of the U.S. is to remain on top no matter what, boomeranged because it opened the way for China to regain economic strength. And again, nothing like our standard of living because China is still a a fraction of America's standard of living, 
but because it's so much bigger in population to reach the scale of the U.S. economy in the aggregate. Jeff, one more economic theme that you address is that there is a populist cycle, not just a business cycle, but a populist cycle you know, that can run in countries that turn inward uh, with their policies. Can you talk about how, how this concept relates to Donald Trump's America first policies and, and the protectionist turn that he's taking? Right. First, I I think it's uh, not right to say that America first is isolationist. America first is unilateralist. The idea of America first is uh, the notion, I'm out for the United States. Rules are a hindrance to freedom of maneuver. I don't believe in international rules. I believe in the art of the deal. Uh, So we're not going to be trapped by rules. We are sovereign uh, and we can act as we want. That's America first. One of those ideas uh, is uh, that protection can be to America's benefit. There are different parts of the argument, apparently. One is we'll protect our manufacturing. Uh, That's a kind of straight, simple-minded economics The other is we'll break China's rise. That's more international statecraft geopolitics. Populism is a bit different, but part of the Trump package. Populism is really short-term appeal to your base by spending money you don't really have. And uh, I have watched these populist cycles repeatedly in Latin America. I started my career in Latin America watching countries in bankruptcy, in debt crisis, in hyperinflation. And uh, typically there had been a strong, strong man like a Juan Perón or a Hugo Chavez in uh, Venezuela. And uh, they wanted to appeal to the masses and so they spent uh, wildly and everything was fine because you get a bit of a Keynesian aggregate demand boom at the beginning and your currency remains stable because you still have reserves. And eventually uh, you run out of cash and you start borrowing because you still have some borrowing capacity. And then eventually you hit the wall on what you can borrow and then all hell breaks loose. And uh, typically you end up with hyperinflation, which is Venezuela's case now. And I can tell you, it is not easy to bankrupt Venezuela. It's a very rich country. It took Chavez and Maduro uh, a generation of mismanagement to end up in hyperinflation. So what is Trump doing? Uh, Trump's whole career has been borrow other people's money, put it into a corporate shell, take some of it out for the family, uh, bankrupt the shell, uh, leave the creditors uh, high and dry, and uh, keep at least some measure of private wealth. And he's made a career out of doing this. He's just doing it with my money right now and your money and uh, other Americans' money because uh, his ideas, uh, he doesn't want to give away money to poor people like uh, maybe Perón or Chavez did. He wants to give tax cuts for the rich. Uh, And so we had a $2 trillion tax cut. The Republicans are apparently uh, wanting to uh, 
do it again, uh, despite the fact that we're running a $1 trillion a year budget deficit. You get into a cycle, and Trump uh, is doing what he's done all his life, uh, which is uh, using other people's money to uh, bolster probably his personal fortune, but at least his political fortunes right now. Uh, But it's such a short-term game, and it's really expensive. And if it goes on for very long, which obviously depends on our electoral cycle, among other things, it becomes incredibly destructive. Jeffrey Sachs, thank you for joining Benchmark. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. The book is A New Foreign Policy Beyond American Exceptionalism, published October 2nd. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore Eco. And our guest, Jeffrey Sachs, is at J-E-F-F. D-S-A-C-H-S. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.